I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, dignity of humanity, having some sense of control over our own lives. Well, these days when the word socialism comes up, people on the right eagerly say, Venezuela, what a terrible mess, unbelievable inflation, no civil liberties, violence in the streets, terrible shortages of food and medicine. They point to the awful Maduro government and look with hope to the man who on his own, called himself uh, acting president, Juan Guaido, who has invited U.S. intervention to at last save his once thriving country of Venezuela. And who knows, by the time you're listening to this, we may already be at war there. But this would not be a purely, well, this would be a purely humanitarian intervention, would it not? Well, of course, as we've seen so many times before, the truth is just a bit different from the carefully selected mainstream media images we are presented with. Before America goes to war against the government of Venezuela, I think it's a good idea for us to see beyond the sensationalistic, simplistic headlines. Maybe we should intervene in a humanitarian gesture, maybe not. Today we're going to look at the less obvious political realities of the crisis. With us today is Chuck Kaufman, who has written an article titled Correcting the False Narrative on Venezuela and Humanitarian Aid. Chuck Kaufman, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me. Chuck Kaufman is a national co-coordinator of the Alliance for Global Justice. He's been a leader of the Central and Latin American Solidarity Movement since joining the staff of Nicaragua Network back in 87. He gave up his successful advertising business out of disgust at Congress's cowardice during the Iran-Contra scandal. Chuck has been in the front ranks of the movements to support the right of people in Latin America and the Caribbean to dignity, sovereignty, and self-determination. He's led delegations to Nicaragua, Venezuela, Haiti, and Honduras. He's written and spoken often about U.S. democracy manipulation programs through the National Endowments for Democracy and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Chuck was a founder of the Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, also known as ANSWER Coalition, and has spoken at most of the major Washington, D.C. anti-war demonstrations. And I want to start off with a, a quote from Roger Waters, who is, all right, no expert on the region. He, of Pink Floyd fame, he says, I have friends who are in Caracas right now, the capital. There is, so far, no civil war, no mayhem, no murder, no apparent dictatorship, no mass imprisonment of opposition, no suppression of the press. None of that is going on, even though that is the narrative that is being sold to the rest of us. Again, that's from Roger Waters, who is uh, <laughs> no stranger to shaking things up. So let's get right to it, Chuck. As your article states, many people are taken in by this argument that 
Maduro is blocking humanitarian aid. Now, we've seen pictures of a blocked bridge. We've heard stories backing up the argument like the European Union and the United States plan to send $60 million in aid. But the awful socialist government of Maduro is not letting this crucial aid in, doing real harm to his people. All right, is Maduro not blocking the humanitarian aid? Well, in the first place, there's not a humanitarian crisis uh, requiring extraordinary world uh, uh, reaction and providing of aid. Uh, In the second place, the United States didn't let uh, let Cuba and Venezuela provide aid uh, during the hurricane that devastated New Orleans a few years ago, uh, and that they were willing to give the aid to the United States government. In this case, the United States isn't giving the aid to the Venezuelan government; they're giving the aid to the opposition, who they have. Uh, uh, declared uh, to be the legitimate government of, of Venezuela. So, yeah, the aid is, is not being let into the country from the United States, the aid that was placed on the border of uh, Venezuela and Colombia by the United States military. However, aid has, has come from other countries like China and Russia, uh, uh, Turkey, etc. Uh, so it's not not that uh, Venice, that the Maduro government is blocking aid; they're blocking this false U.S. humanitarian aid. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, we just get that side of the story, thinking, well, I, I guess we're supposed to deduce that we, the United States, is the only ones offering aid, but that's an interesting point that they're letting aid in from other countries. You say that one story we have not heard is that the Venezuelan government is demanding the return of more than $23 billion to Venezuela that is frozen in accounts being held in the U.S., Canada, and Europe that they consider stolen from their public treasury. Uh, We hadn't heard about that. What's that about? Well, right, that's the result of the sanctions, uh, uh, you know, if the U.S. really cared about uh, uh, so-called humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, all it needs to do is drop the sanctions, and Venezuela can buy its own medicine and its own food. Uh, it doesn't need uh, the charity of the United States. Uh, so, yeah, you know, the Bank of England uh, is holding over a billion dollars worth of Venezuelan gold that they won't uh, release. The United States sanctions uh, are extreme. That uh, Sitco Gasoline, which is owned by the uh, Venezuelan National Oil Company, uh, can't send profits to Venezuela. Uh, You know, it's very much like... uh, like Chile, Allende's Chile in 1973, uh, which uh, Henry Kissinger famously uh, said, you know, make the economy bleed. Uh, and that's what, that's what they're doing to Venezuela. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, nothing like uh, 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 the free market at work. So Sitco selling their 
petroleum products, and they're not allowed to send the money down to Venezuela. Boy, talk about pick, picking winners and picking losers. And good old Henry Kissinger. Uh, it's amazing that he's he has not faced justice for his crimes. But that's another story. Although it's, <laughs> he's proof that the only the good die young. I know. <laughs> he's, what, 91, <laughs> something like that. Well, Chuck Kaufman, you say the U.S. government, corporate media, and NGOs, non-governmental organizations, interested in regime change, repeatedly claim there is a humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. This is not new. This narrative has been pushed at least since 2016. Now, you point out that while there is indeed scarcity and shortages, the economic situation in Venezuela does not reach the scope of a humanitarian crisis. Now, I'm sure there's no legal definition of, of humanitarian crisis, but, but what, what, say more of what you mean, please. Well, uh, there are certainly shortages, and those shortages are caused by the U.S. economic blockade, by uh, internal sabotage by the, the capitalist class in, in Venezuela, uh, and I can talk more about that with regard to sure. uh, currency exchange manipulation, uh, and you know, and it's caused by government uh, policies that uh, that worked just fine in the time of uh, peak oil prices and uh, uh, don't work well during a time when oil is uh, yeah. selling for half of what it did back then. Yeah. Uh, so there's so there's reasons, you know, multiple reasons for the shortages, but they're they're shortages. It's not like you know, it's not like a, a, a famine in Ethiopia where you know, children are dying from starvation uh, or died from starvation. It's a case where people have, may may have to change what they are accustomed to eating. You know, they may may not be able to buy potatoes on a particular day, but they can buy sweet potatoes, uh, and they have to stand in line to do it. It's, it's a terrible situation. Inflation is terrible, but it's, it's a problem that Venezuela could, could uh, recover from if, uh, if there wasn't outside intervention actively keeping them from recovering. And you, you mentioned uh, currency manipulation. Tell us about that, please, because as you say, there has been just unbelievable inflation. Talk about the currency manipulation and the effects that that has had. Yeah, okay, well, just, you know, let me do a disclosure that I'm not an economist, but as I understand uh, the situation, uh, during, uh, during the Chavez years, in order to uh, prevent capital flight uh, from the rich people taking their money out of the country, uh, uh, multiple exchange rates were implemented. So if you were a um, grocery store, you could uh, apply for dollars, and I'll just make up some figures here that, that you could uh, you could buy a dollar for ten bolivars, and then you spend that dollar importing food, 
Venezuela because it's a oil rich country has uh not been food self sufficient since since oil was discovered they uh, import most of their food so um as uh as uh, oil prices dropped you know which were the backing for the currency uh the bolivar became worth less and yet the exchange rate stayed the same. So after a while, there was a big divergence between what people could buy dollars for on the black market and what they could buy dollars for uh, through the official exchange. So uh, just to, to continue to make up numbers, a businessman, a grocery store could buy a dollar uh, for ten bolivars on um, on the official market. Walk outside to black market guy and get you know a thousand bolivars for that dollar. So you know, with the logic of capitalism, uh, it was much more profitable for the businessman not to buy a food to stock the shelves in the grocery store, but just to go out and uh, exchange that that ten bolivar dollar for a for a thousand bolivars and be quite wealthy. And so that that has driven inflation in Venezuela and now without access to to the oil money from right. From Sitco and you know the other blockades of, of the economy, the other sabotage of the economy, the government doesn't have the money to um, to change that policy and and shield poor people from the devastating effects of, of devaluating the currency. So again, it's it's Kissinger's quote. What was his quote again? It seems like uh, it's applicable or being applied here. That make them right. make the economy scream. Yeah, yeah, that's what they seem to be doing. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on keeping democracy alive. It's quite a struggle in Venezuela, and we're talking about realities in Venezuela. Our guest today is. Uh, Chuck Kaufman, who is uh, with the Alliance for Global Justice. We're talking about uh, realities there. Uh, Hugo Chavez was a very popular socialist president of Venezuela. Uh, I forget when he came in. Uh, He did die just a few years ago. The, The people did very well under his leadership. Of course, the oil prices were very high, and there was... A coup attempted against him in 2002. There's a very good movie about that. Uh, something about the revolution will not be televised, something like that. Anyway, yep. it's a documentary. Very good. I highly recommend it. So he, Hugo Chavez was out of power for 47 hours, I believe. There was no humanitarian crisis back then. He was a socialist. What what is so different now, or maybe maybe it's not so different? Is it just the 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 drop in oil value or the embargo? What is so different? Why was he a popular socialist, and now this guy? Apparently, there are you know a lot of people out in the streets uh, who don't like Maduro. 
Right. Um, well, anybody would have had a had a hard time following Chavez. Uh, true. Chavez was a was a force of nature. <laughs> uh, he was, you know, a unique individual who could uh, you know, express the the hopes and and goals of of the people, uh, and who was you know, loved by them and. Uh, and followed, uh, you know, almost religiously. Uh, so, you know, Maduro, Maduro is a uh, man-sized man instead of a, a oversized <laughs> man like uh, Chavez was. Uh, I met Maduro when he was foreign minister of uh, Venezuela, and uh, you know he. He wasn't at all the way that he's being portrayed by the press uh, uh, on the one side as a dictator and on the other side as you know some hapless boob who can't uh, mm. you know can't run the run the country. Uh, he's he's a very competent man. He you know during before uh, Chavez's victory uh, in 1998. Uh, Maduro was a um, was a union organizer of bus drivers at a time when mm -hmm. uh, union unions were illegal in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And then when Tra Chavez had his uh, failed coup in 1992 and was imprisoned, uh, Maduro was in charge of the grassroots. Uh, campaign to get Chavez released, and his wife, uh, who's a lawyer, was in charge of the legal uh, battle. Uh, so, yeah, he's quite quite a competent person. Uh, you know, capitalist countries have, have uh, recessions. Uh, it's built into the capitalist system, and uh, the drop in oil when the, mm -hmm. when the economy... Uh, is so dependent on the oil, uh, you know, had a lot harder effect on Venezuela than it has, you know, on the U.S. or other countries with a more diversified economy. So, um, so is it really? Because I've wondered it. I've been sort of mystified why, you know, one socialist very popular, another socialist not so popular. So it's it's in part, if I get it right, there was a cult of personality. He was uh, Chavez was, you know, had had tremendous charisma, and people loved him. That and the drop in oil prices. It, does that explain what appears to be a, a really big difference? Is that pretty much it? Well, I think that's a large part of it. I mean, I don't think it's you know up to us to decide. Right. Yeah. That the Venezuelans ought to uh, ought to support uh, Maduro or anybody else. You know, there's other Chavistas who have uh, you know legitimate uh, claim to support within within the broad uh, support that the Chavistas uh, enjoys in Venezuela. Um, but, but we're not at this point talking about uh, who who is who ought to be the leader within Chavismo. We're talking about uh, 
a person who was just recently reelected uh, with uh, close to two thirds of the vote, and somebody who hasn't received a single vote in a national election. Uh, so, you know, we can we can talk about uh, about whether Maduro is as good of a president as Chavez was. But, you know, it doesn't matter what you and I think about that. It matters what the Venezuelan people think. What a concept, letting people decide for themselves. Oh, yeah. Just imagine. It always it's made me uh, sort of chafe when I hear the expression about Central and South America, they are in our backyard. No, they're not in our backyard. They live there. Oh, it, do, it does amaze yeah. me. So this character... Juan Guaido, I'm not sure if I pronounced it right. He, who is he? He didn't, he didn't get elected. He's claiming he's president now. And, of course, Trump says, oh, yeah, he's president. He declared him president. Uh, who, who is he? And is he okay with U.S. intervention, do you think? Well, he's, a, um, he's an elected representative of a right-wing party. Uh, so he's... Um, he would be the equivalent of a Congress member of Congress in the U.S. Uh, his party holds, oh, I think it's four seats in the in the National Assembly, their Congress, and um, might be six seats. I, I I'm not sure of the precise number. Um, the system that they have in Venezuela is that the. Uh, office that would be equivalent to Nancy Pelosi's Speaker of the House mm-hmm. uh, rotates among the political parties that are that are in the National Assembly. So it just uh, happened that uh, that, it, that rotation recently reached the uh, Justice First Party, which is um, uh-huh. which is the party that he and so he became the the speaker of the house for I'm, I'm not sure how long the term is they're not long terms you know six months or or a year uh-huh. or something like that uh, so on the basis of that and him declaring that the election wasn't legitimate which is a whole another uh, disinformation uh, story uh, he declared if, if the presidency is empty, then the speaker, the, I forget what the actual title, but the, the office that's equivalent to speaker of the house, um, becomes the interim president for, uh-huh. uh, 60 days or 30 days or something like that until they have a new election for president. So that's the spurious basis on which he's claiming uh, legitimacy. So he wants to have a a new election. And it it, it just, you know, it certainly sounds like deja vu all over again. You know, we've seen this picture a thousand times of the U.S. in that, uh, that region. So as I understand it, and Guido's party or Guido's party is called the Justice First Party, is that right? I believe that's right. His party members in the National Assembly appear overwhelmingly basically white uh, as compa- <laughs> compared to their political opposites who support the elected president, Nicolas Maduro. 
I have read that four centuries, 400 years of white supremacy in Venezuela by those who identify their ancestors as European came to an end with the 1998 election of Hugo Chavez, who won the overwhelming support of the Mestizo majority, the mixed race uh, uh, indigenous people. This turn away from white supremacy continues under Maduro. So how much of a factor is that? When you look at pictures of Guaido's backers as compared to Maduro's backers, uh, <laughs> sort of black and white, no, not exactly black and white, but there's mixed race in one and white on the other. How much of a factor is that in all this? I mean, we know Trump likes white supremacy. That is for sure, for sure. Well, that's certainly uh, racism. has certainly been a factor, uh, you know, that used to describe Chavez is looking like a monkey, and uh, yeah, it's not just Venezuela, it's pretty much throughout Latin America, the lighter skinned uh, people uh, who have more European blood than Indian blood in them um, are the ones that, that are the business people, that are the owners and, of the land and, and the businesses, uh, they're the rich people. The oligarchy, the elites, uh, and it really, really bothered them when Hugo Chavez was elected. They didn't think it was legitimate for somebody who was African and, and Indian uh, to be president, uh, and so that that's you know holding true. That they looked down on Maduro as a bus driver, as a former bus driver. Well, a bus driver can't be president mm -hmm. of Venezuela. But, you know, they're, they're, this is a small minority, a rich small minority, mm -hmm. but they can't win elections because the the reason that, that Chavez was supported and the current uh, Bolivarian government is supported is because they actually spread the wealth around. They took control of Pettivesa, which is the national oil company, and they used the, the profits and not to line their own pockets, but to uh, raise people out of, out of poverty. Uh, they, uh, they achieved the, the UN millennium, millennial goals of, uh, millennium goals of, uh, of cutting poverty in half by 2015. Um, uh, so mm -hmm. the people uh, still remember what it was like before Chavez, and uh, uh, they're clear that they don't want to go back to that kind of uh, kleptocracy system. Well, I'm curious. We have seen a lot on, on the television, the mainstream media, of big crowds for and against Maduro. Uh, I wonder about that and also the allegation. And I I know that, you know, in many, many countries, whoever controls the military, they got the power. And it seems like in this case, the military is sticking with uh, Nicolas Maduro. Uh, but, but what about the reality on the streets? I mean, it, it, the picture we're getting is that there's tremendous opposition to Maduro. Do you know what the reality is? I mean, it is not 
a dictatorship, so there is, uh, you know, people can gather and there's different parties, as you say. What What is the reality on the ground about that stuff? Do you know? Yeah, well, Venezuela is definitely a very polarized uh, country. Uh, there were huge crowds for and against Chavez. There's huge crowds for and against Maduro. Um, but what we can see that when elections are held and Venezuelans' elections uh, were in 2012 were said by Jimmy Carter to be the best uh, that he observed in no, no kidding. forgotten how many wow. how many elections the Carter Center has has observed uh, but a great many uh, <laughs> the you know the the Bolivarians uh, have the allegiance of something like two thirds of the of the voting population and uh, the oligarchs who used to run things. Uh, can get about a third, but they can't win a national election. Huh. Yeah, democracy versus oligarchy. Why does that sound so familiar? Where have I heard of that before? <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. Again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are, with your help, keeping democracy alive, and there seems to be some threat regarding that in Venezuela. We're talking with Chuck Kaufman about uh, correcting the false narrative of Venezuela and humanitarian aid. He's national co-coordinator of the Alliance for Global Justice and knows a fair amount about the area. Now, the percentage of undernourished people in Venezuela, according to UN report, is 11.7%. That is pretty high, 11.7% undernourished. Surely that shouldn't be considered acceptable, uh, how does that compare to food security in Venezuela in recent years? Oh, well, it's gotten worse uh, as um, as the uh, price of oil fell by half. Uh, there was less money for food subsidies. Uh, inflation uh, takes a horrible toll. Uh, there's no doubt that things are are very tough and but yeah we should go back and compare those figures to say 1989 uh and i think i don't have those figures at my fingertips but i'm pretty confident that you will find that the undernourished uh percentage was higher in 1989 than it is today and i understand that ten years after that, in 1999, food scarcity was worse than it is today. Bill Clinton was president, but there was no outcry for humanitarian aid back then. Why was there no outcry if the food scarcity was worse then than now? Because it's entirely a political manipulation in order to get the U.S. population to support. Uh, the overthrow of the sovereign government, which I don't think, other than with Democrats in Congress, is selling very well in the U.S. It's going to be a, a, a national day of action with uh, with uh, demonstrations in dozens of U.S. and Canadian cities. Canada also has uh, recognized Guaido and uh, and implemented sanctions against Venezuela. Uh, 
so the you know the anti-war movement that came together around Iraq and Afghanistan uh, is mobilizing itself uh, belatedly, but uh, but we're happy to see it uh, in favor of, or against U.S. intervention in in Venezuela. Um, so I don't. I mean, their story just is not credible, and so people aren't as stupid as what what the elites think that they are, and they can see. Plus, the other thing is that they're occasionally honest about their objectives, like you know Bolton uh, saying that. Uh, that you know, this is going to be good for American companies to be able to have uh, access to Venezuela's oil profits, and uh, you know, this is one more uh, you know blood for oil kind of situation yeah. that's uh, shaping up here. Interesting, yeah, oil, the power of oil, and there was that uh, uh, photograph of of Bolton's legal pad. Uh, where he had written down in handwriting, five thousand troops on the Colombian border. They, yeah. I mean, Trump. Let's face it, loves distractions. What could be a better distraction than a new war? And yeah. when you, when you know when you say people aren't that dumb, they're figuring. They want. I mean, Trump has said he loves uh, uneducated uh, people. Uh, they depend on that, and they've been cutting funding for education for years and years and years in hopes that people would be as dumb as they would like, but we are not. And the other uh, thing is here, a little editorializing yet again from me, is that uh, they have convinced us, they, the oligarchs, have convinced us that we are powerless. We are not powerless. They want us to believe we are powerless. Taken to the streets absolutely matters. It does matter. The politicians have to see for them to take a position that it's safe for them to take a position. And the way they see it is by looking out in the streets, and if it's calm and nobody's saying anything, they can do what they want to do. All right, back to uh, what you know. some of the reality um, on the ground there. Now, the Maduro government has, has known about food scarcity and nutrition security for a long time. In your article, you point to various... Uh, uh, bureaucracies that have founded various uh, organizations, various steps that have been taken by the Maduro government very specifically to address food and nutrition security. Share some of that information with us, please. Right. Um, so they they have uh, set up uh, various mechanisms. There originally under Chavez, there were the subsidized uh, grocery stores where uh, people... Uh, below a certain economic uh, level could uh, buy uh, subsidized groceries. Actually, they can still do that, but the businesses have found ways around uh, around that by packaging the foods in different sizes than uh, uh, are covered under the, the subsidies and, and that kind of thing. Um, uh, uh, it's been a while since I've written that article, so I'm having trouble remembering the uh, names of the of the new. 
programs uh, under Maduro. But there have um, been a whole bunch, yeah. So to to yeah. specifically address it. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so basically, you know, they're they're promoting cooperatives. Uh, they're distributing land for farming, but you know, Venezuelans haven't farmed for several generations now, and farming is not exactly an easy or fun uh, occupation for most people. So uh, there was, there has been since the beginning of the Bolivarian Revolution when Chavez was elected and took office in, in 1999, there's been uh, efforts to increase food security in, in Venezuela, but you know, very few people want to go back to the land after living uh, in a city. Uh, I know I, I wouldn't want to. I grew up on a farm. I wouldn't want to <laughs> go back <laughs> and uh, live that way again. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so it comes back to oil again. My uh, co-worker, Kathy Hoyt, uh, calls it the, the curse of oil. Uh, where when a country like Venezuela, the entire economy yeah. is based on on oil, and they import everything that they need, then they're then they're subject to the capitalist market uh, and the ups and downs of that. Uh, so, uh, but the government still is uh, committed to you know, to feeding people. Uh, the the shortages are not as dire as they're being presented to us by the the corporate press. Uh, they're they're bad. It's certainly yeah. an uncomfortable period uh, in Venezuela's history. Sure, but if it wasn't being interfered with from the outside, Venezuela could solve these problems. Yeah, it's interesting how people can, you know, if, if left to their own devices and their sense of dignity, being able to participate, people can handle it. They're, they're not, you know, people that we need to uh, control. I mean, that's the old imperialist uh, overall belief that, oh, no, they can't handle They can't govern themselves. We have to govern it for them. And a lot of uh, plutocrats and oligarchs also believe that happens to be rather profitable at the same time. Now, this this is a curious item. You write that an opposition-linked eco- uh, economist forecast 10% growth for the Venezuelan economy in the fourth quarter of 2018, suggesting that the worst of the economic crisis had been overcome. Now, that 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 doesn't fit with the picture we've seen. How, how can that be accurate? What, what can you tell us about that? Right. Well, that's the um, U.S. and Canadian governments read that same economic report, and that's when uh, that's when they started uh, 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 screwing down the, the sanctions. Uh, so uh, when that when that was written, Venezuela still was able to get the profits from Citgo and access it. Gold and the Bank of England, and you know all of those other things that it needed to uh, to 
improve the economy. So the, you know, it was a very, very deliberate campaign uh, and very deliberate policies of the United States government uh, to prevent that uh, recovery from happening. Wow. Yeah, they, they can politically gain from that. Very, very interesting. And you've mentioned the word Bolivar a few times. Everybody throughout Central and Latin and South America knows Simon Bolivar. Uh, he's, their currency, I guess, is related to that. Who, just briefly, uh, what is the position of, of Bolivar in all this and, and, and why it's such a, a commonly used word and what meaning it may have for the people of Venezuela? Well, Simon Bolivar was um, was Venezuela and, and Colombia's George Washington. Uh, he was the one who freed you know, freed them from from Spanish rule, and uh, and he was also uh, interventionist, both both from Spain and uh, he coined the term the Colossus of the North. Uh, to describe the United States, uh, uh, sometimes he's misidentified as the person who coined the phrase that when the United States uh, sneezes, the rest of the world gets pneumonia. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, he probably would have said that had he thought of it first. Um, <laughs> Uh, myth and history, yeah. two different things. But you mentioned a little bit the, the, the sanctions against the government of Venezuela. I think it's worth talking about a little bit more about how, I mean, most Americans are not aware that there are any U.S. sanctions against the government of Venezuela. So how might that be impacting the population? How, how is it manifesting itself, itself in everyday life for the people of Venezuela, this the American sanctions against the country. Right. Well, it's like a it's like a blockade. It's like banks can't or are afraid to uh, to handle financial transactions um, uh, because they're afraid of falling um, uh, of being found to violate the. The sanctions, and then you know, getting fined uh, by the Treasury Department. Oh, uh, wow. That means Venezuela can't uh, can't pay for uh, importing food or medicine through the international banking system. So how how do they pay that? I mean, sanctions are an act of war, according to the United Nations. Uh, hmm. Sanctions are illegal unless uh, done collectively by the United Nations. Uh, sanctions are a collective punishment, which is a violation of international law, mm. and they hurt the people who are most vulnerable in any country. Yeah, the, the first Bush administration sanctions against uh, Iraq uh, cost the lives of a, of a million children. Uh, who died from preventable diseases and uh, you know, uh, unclean water and uh, 
all those all those things that uh, the government had provided beforehand and uh, was unable to because of the crippling sanctions. So the, those same things are being applied to Venezuela. And when did that happen? Did that just it? It couldn't have just started under Trump, or did it? When did the sanctions begin? No, it started under Obama uh, in um, 2014. Uh, 2014 was uh, uh, when the first uh, Guarimba, the first uh, opposition violence period in in Venezuela, and uh, that was coordinated with uh, with the Obama administration declaring. Uh, Venezuela to be a threat to U.S. security uh-huh. and uh, imposing sanctions. Uh, the the Venezuelan opposition figured out uh, after Chavez's death that it wasn't still wasn't going to be able to win an election, mm. and so uh, they uh, yeah they they moved to violence instead to yeah. to get regime change and. Uh, yeah, the Venezuelan people stood up against them, and and that uh, they failed to achieve their those goals in 2014, and uh, again in 2017 they re- resorted to violence, and now this is a a continuation of that, uh, always hand in hand with uh, with U.S. sanctions. Uh, so it goes, as Kurt Vonnegut used to say. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're on Keeping Democracy Alive. And I hope you participate in doing your part to keep democracy alive here in America and elsewhere in the world. We'll get to that before the end of the discussion with our guest, Chuck Kaufman. We're talking about an article titled Correcting the False Narrative on Venezuela and Humanitarian Aid. Well, the the U.S. has been offering $20 million, very publicly, in aid, about 60 tons of food. Now, we've seen pictures of it being blocked at the Colombian border at at a bridge there. We've seen these pictures. What gives here? Is Venezuela refusing the aid? What's the story about that uh, that photograph? (laughs) Well, that photograph is another piece of disinformation. It looks like like Venezuela has... You know, close down that bridge in order to keep uh, aid from from uh, crossing it. Well, that bridge has never been opened in the first place uh, because uh, I mean it's it was completed a couple of years ago, uh, uh, but because of uh, political problems between Venezuela and Colombia, neither side oh, has yes. ever opened its. <laughs> Its side of the bridge, so it makes a makes a great uh, propaganda photograph. This empty bridge uh, with you know, p- pictures of the army on the one side of it, the Venezuelan army. But it's just it's a prop. Every picture tells a story. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. That is truly. Amazing. How convenient is that? What has the International Committee of the Red Cross said about American policy regarding humanitarian aid? Yeah, well, good good question. The, um, the Red Cross is refusing to have anything to do with the delivery of uh, 
what they called the politicized uh, humanitarian aid. Normally, the Red Cross would be uh, an agency through which uh, aid would be delivered. Sure. But uh, they're, they're not having anything to do with it. The OAS isn't having anything to do with it because, you know, it's, it's not humanitarian aid. It's a political manipulation. Right. Using aid as a weapon. Lovely. Right. Yeah. I'm going to say a name that you and I probably have a similar reaction when we hear the name Elliot Abrams. <laughs> but, <laughs> but probably most listeners are less familiar with Elliot Abrams. Who is he and what is his role currently regarding the U.S. and Venezuela? Yeah, well, Elliot Abrams is a convicted criminal. If people have heard of the Iran-Contra scandal during the Reagan administration where uh, when Congress had cut off aid to the, uh, to the Contras, yeah. who were the uh, uh, U.S. trained and funded uh, former uh, Somoza dictatorship soldiers uh they were put together as a as an army a terrorist army yes. after the Sandinista revolution was triumphant in 1979 um, and what was his role Abrams was uh, one of the primary architects of uh-huh. the uh, selling arms to Iran and using the profits to fund illegally fund the Contras. And so he was convicted of lying to Congress and and other uh, crimes. And then he was uh, he was pardoned by George Bush. Uh, but that doesn't make him any less a criminal. It was Elliot Abrams and um, and uh, Oliver North who uh, got me so angry that I gave up my advertising business and uh, became a full-time activist uh, in solidarity with Nicaragua, which changed the course of my life. Uh, Elliot Abrams was also, uh, you know, covered up the uh, El Mazote massacre in Salvador. Oh, my God, really. Other atrocities and Guatemala, he also became quite a rich man as a result of his contacts throughout uh, Central America. He, he has some business holdings uh, uh, currently in Central America. And what's his role now with regard to Venezuela and American policy? Right, and so Trump has uh, just recently appointed him as special envoy to Venezuela uh, <laughs> so he's now managing uh, the U.S. regime change uh, efforts. Lovely. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I And I had heard nothing about this. On February 5th, 2019, Venezuelan authorities discovered a shipment of weapons and military equipment on a flight that originated from Miami, Please talk about the history of using humanitarian aid relative to U.S. interventions in the past. And what do you think, uh, uh, what do we know about this, this uh, weapons and military equipment and how that relates to 
the manipulation of the term humanitarian aid, like humanitarian intervention. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that, that's a common uh, method of the CIA to deliver weapons uh, to uh, insurgent forces in various countries. Yeah, they, they caught that plane and that shipment of, of arms, but uh, records show that that plane had made something like 40 flights into Venezuela oh, in the wow. previous month. So, uh, you know, what was what was it carrying on those other flights, and who received those weapons? Uh, you know, this is this. You know, they've made movies about uh, about this this method of uh, U.S. support for uh, regime change and uh-huh. violence in countries targeted by the U.S. Uh, so it's. Uh, it's something that should be familiar to all your listeners. So Americans in general, I think, really at root are a, a compassionate people. We sincerely do care and want to help to alleviate suffering in the world. I think most people really do care. It's just sort of in our nature. You say the most immediate humanitarian aid that could be provided by the U.S. and Canada would be to drop the sanctions. And I guess Trump has actually uh, accelerated the sanctions uh, in late January 2019. Say more about how, how that could help and, and what we, the people, might actually be able to do with regard to, to pressuring our elected officials to, uh, to drop the sanctions. And what, what was the new sanctions before you get to that? Well, the latest sanctions were the ones that... Uh that just cut Venezuela off from from the profits from Sitco uh, gas, oh, right. uh, which was its you know, most important uh, economic asset in the sure. U.S. Uh, I doubt very much that Venezuela had other money in U.S. banks at that point, given the hostility of the of the Trump administration and before that the Obama administration and before that the Bush Jr. Uh, administration. Uh, but the, the latest sanctions just, and, and you know, they ramped there's it up. probably still other things that they can sanction, uh, and they will. They'll keep turning the screws in the mm-hmm. hopes that it will make the Venezuelan People suffer so much that they will uh, that they'll back the the U.S. Uh, uh, supported government right. of Juan Guaido. Uh, so what can people for, what can people yeah, do? First part. Yeah. Go, go, what what can people do? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, for one thing, we should be saying uh, to Democrats. You need to speak up, uh, and you need to vote right. Uh, you know, you're you've been inflaming us about uh, so-called uh, intervention in the 2016 election by Russia. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, what's what? You know, what you've been upset about there is not one one percent of what the U.S. is doing in Venezuela. And if it was wrong. For Russia to do in the U.S., it's wrong for the U.S. to do in Venezuela, and it's oh, just plain not acceptable. Uh, 
uh, we need to end the sanctions uh, because that that is what's creating uh, suffering for the the poorest people in in Venezuela. Uh, if you look at the opposition crowds, uh, uh, as you were noting, they not uh, not only do they look substantially lighter skinned than the yeah. than the supporters of the government, they also don't look like they've missed many meals. Yeah. Uh, True. So uh, yeah, so the 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 weight of these sanctions are falling on poor people, not on rich people. Right. Uh, rich people can fly to Miami and do their do their shopping, as one of them told a group that I led down there in uh, 2007. He said, all Venezuelans shop in Miami. So that tells you something about his idea of who, who is a Venezuelan. Mm. Um, but... So we just have to we just have to keep pressuring our elected officials. We need to let them know that uh, that this is an issue that we're willing to to vote or withhold our vote right. uh, based on how how they behave. We need to be out in the streets. We need to be writing letters to yes, the editor. We they do matter on shows like yours. Uh, uh, you know all the tools that uh, people. People use uh, your union local needs to pass a resolution, yeah, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We can do it. And the yeah. we- the website for the Alliance for Global Justice is is uh, the initials of Alliance for Global Justice. So it's a f g j dot o r g. And also, I wanted to mention sure, that sure. we are starting a Pledge of Resistance, and it will appear on our webpage uh, in which people can sign a pledge saying that they will commit direct action and risk arrest if the U.S. invades Venezuela or or foments a coup there. Uh, This is similar to the Pledge of Resistance in the 1980s. Yes, I remember. 1,000 people signed I was there. Well, thank you very much. This has been very, very informative. And, uh, you know, the truth shall set you free, I've heard somebody say. Thank you very much, Chuck Kaufman, for being with us today and shedding light into the realities of Venezuela. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is Venezuelan music now. Sabes que ya llevo un rato mirándote Tengo que bailar contigo hoy Vi que tu mirada ya estaba llamándome Muéstrame el camino que yo voy Tú, tú eres el imán y yo soy el metal Me voy acercando, voy armando el plan Solo con pensarlo se acelera el pulso Deja que te diga cosas al oído Para que te acuerdes si no estás conmigo De 
Chido. Chido.